language hackers. Welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast with me, Elizabeth Bruckner, and of course, Benny Lewis. Hey, hey. In this episode, we speak with Simon Egger of Omniglot.com. Some of the things we discuss are what it's like to get a master's degree in linguistics, and what are some of the resources that this prominent polyglot uses, and also Will Omniglot.com run out of languages? Stay tuned for this episode. For our Patreon subscribers, thank you so much for subscribing and supporting the show. We have a few extra questions. Like we talk about comparing music and languages and the skill of learning a new skill, as well as what our best languages are. Simon kind of flips the script and asks us questions. So let's get started. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 103. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I am here with my co-host, Elizabeth, and today we are interviewing a friend of mine, Simon Ager, who is the founder of Omniglot.com, a website you are absolutely guaranteed to have come across and used. Uh, it's been there for a very long time. I really want to hear his story. And I've met him personally at Polyglot events, but I've also met him in a little village in the northwest of Ireland, where even though he's not Irish, he has definitely given us Irish a run for our money in terms of uh, having a very impressive uh, level of the Irish language. I think he's probably one of the few guests I've had on who's actually met my own mother because she was with me in the uh, in the town at that time. That was a few years ago, wasn't it? That was a few years ago, yeah. Definitely a very interesting guest, and I am very happy to dive into your story and to share that with people. So let's kick it off with your own perspective. Before we talk about your website, I want to hear your language learning stories. What was your environment growing up? And how did language learning then come into your life? Well, I, I grew up in England, in Lancashire, in, uh, in the northwest of England. Um, my mum is Welsh, but she doesn't speak Welsh. And my dad was English. And I grew up only speaking English at first. I knew about other languages. Um, I had neighbours who spoke German, and other people in the village spoke French. And I've always been interested in learning Welsh, because of my mum's Welsh background. But I didn't really start learning languages until I was 11 at secondary school. And then we had to learn French for three years. And then I continued learning after that for another four years. So I just enjoyed it and it was quite good as it. When I was 12, um, I was given the option of learning German. And I thought, yeah, why not? Give it a go. So I did. I learned that up to the age of 18. And after finishing secondary school, I decided to work for a year before going to university. And I had various jobs in England, in France, and in the Channel Islands. In France, I became fairly fluent in French. And in the Channel Islands, I was working in a hotel where most of my colleagues were from Portugal. And um, I picked up a bit of basic Portuguese from them. Not enough to have a conversation, but just kind of things like numbers and names of drinks and fruit and things like that. So I was working in the bar and some of the people I needed to get stuff from didn't speak any English. So I had to be able to ask for like 10 oranges or five lemons or whatever. But that's about 
the, the extent of my uh, Portuguese at the time. And then I went to university and did a degree in Chinese and Japanese. Originally, I'd been planning to do European languages, but then I thought, well, everybody else does that. I want to do something different, something more exotic and interesting and challenging. And it certainly was challenging, learning two very different languages from the beginning. I, I tried to learn a bit of Japanese before going. I got myself a linguaphone course, which wasn't great because it taught kind of very formal Japanese, which nobody speaks in everyday life. And um, I didn't learn much from that. So I, I was essentially learning from a complete beginner. So it took me four years to get my degree. And I had my second year in Taiwan and Japan and China. I studied for a semester in Taiwan, then another semester in Japan, then went traveling in China for a few months. And um, by the end of that year, I was reasonably conversational in both languages, in Mandarin and Japanese. Then I had another two years in England, in Leeds, where I was studying. And then after I graduated, I went back to Taiwan. I got a scholarship to study Chinese for another year in Taiwan. I took classes in um, classical Chinese, which is another thing altogether. You know, you think if you speak Mandarin, you'd be able to read kind of old Chinese, but it's, it's not the case at all. Different vocabulary, different grammar, and a lot of new characters to learn. And there's also classes in newspaper reading and modern literature, which I took. There's just reading newspapers in Taiwan as a challenge, just working out where to start reading, where the text goes, is it vertical or horizontal? Or... That was, that was uh, interesting. And then I spent another four years in Taiwan working for the British Council. I started as an education counsellor. So local people would come in and say, I want to go and study in the UK. Can you help me find a school to apply, apply to? You know, what do I need to do? And I'd give them advice on doing that. And then I uh, also became a what was my title? Uh, external liaison officer. That was it. So I was liaising with local institutions and British institutions and trying to bring them together. British institutions wanted to recruit students and make connections with the local institutions. So I was helping them do that. And then I got into IT. I became the IT manager of the office and learned about websites and desktop publishing and doing a bit of interpreting and presentations and all sorts of other things. So it was a it was a very um, interesting time. I learned a lot of stuff, a lot of useful stuff. And after five years in Taiwan, I decided I needed a break. I needed to do something different. So I returned to the UK and thought I could set up my own business. And this is when Omni got started. So originally, my plan was to set up a uh, translation and interpret translation and web design business, basically translating websites for people. And I did a bit of that. But I wasn't very good at finding people, finding clients, customers, and getting paid. That's always a problem when you're working freelance. After a year, I, 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 at the same time during, during the year I was doing that, I um, was applying for other jobs. And eventually I got a job in Brighton making multilingual websites for a company there. And it was a big global company with um, schools and colleges all over the, the world, really in the UK, USA, Australia. And I made their websites in multiple languages and I did that for nine years. And while I was doing that, I was building up Omniglot. So it started as a kind of a way to promote my own you know, web design 
translation business, but then kind of morphed into a site about languages and writing systems, which it is today. And that was gradually building up. And eventually I, I worked out how to make a bit of money from it, you know, promoting um, products, getting affiliate programs. People started approaching me saying, can we put links and banners on your site? I got money from that. And um, by, by the time I, I uh, left Brighton, after nine years there, I, um, I was making just about enough money from Omniglot to live on, but not to live in Brighton, which is a very expensive place. And that's one reason why I moved to Bangor, where I live now. I had a plan. I'd been thinking about doing something different for a while. And I thought, I want to use my language skills and do something useful. So I was thinking, what could I do? I could be home a teacher, maybe doing more studies and um, get qualified. I was looking at courses in teaching English as a foreign language or Chinese or other things. I thought also about becoming a speech and language therapist. And I looked up, you know, what do you need to do to do that? What kind of qualifications and background do you need for that? And um, I found... I. I met a few people who had been studying that, who knew about that, and they said, well, it's helpful to know about linguistics. And I hadn't studied any formal linguistics before. You know, I'd read about language and linguistics on my own, but I hadn't really studied it in any formal way. So I thought, right, I'll do an MA in linguistics. And I looked around for courses and saw that it was a good one at Bangor University. And also when I'd been in Brighton, I'd taught myself Welsh, as you do. And um, I thought it'd be nice to be in someone, a place where people actually speak it as an everyday language. And about half the people in Bangor do that. So I thought, right, I'm going off to Bangor. So I, I've been there and I've been there ever since. So I, I came here in 2008. I did my MA. And then I thought, I don't need another job. I'm earning enough money from Omniglot. I can just stay here and continue working on Omniglot. So that's what I've been doing. That's wonderful. There's so much here to unpack. What a fascinating life life journey you've had thus far. <laughs> and so I think we'll go step by step. I'd love to go back to when you left university and spent a year abroad. How did you stay out of the English bubble? Because lots of people do that and they don't come back speaking another language. Well, I, I only had three months in France. The rest of the time I was in England. So in France, I was staying with two different families. The first one didn't speak any English. I was working on on their farm. So, yeah, it was no problem keeping away from English-speaking people because I was in a tiny little village. There was nobody else who spoke English anywhere around. And on the second farm I worked on, it was pretty similar. Were those your first immersion experiences? Pretty much, you know, when I've been at, school, at secondary school, I've done a few trips, you know, a week or two weeks or a month to Germany and France and Austria and stayed with families there. And they, they spoke English, but they, they only spoke uh, German or French to me. So, you know, I've had short, short immersion experiences before. You mentioned the, uh, that you tr- tried out things like the Linguaphone course. What eventually have you found to be your ideal language learning strategy like what what does your routine look like or what resources do you like to use nowadays well well at the moment i'm mainly using duolingo and memrise i've been uh using duolingo for the past five years not sure what my current streak is let's just have a look 
1,717 days today. Oh my god. <laughs> wow. Are you using freezes? Be honest. No. No, I haven't used a single one. <laughs> you just actually touch that you make contact with languages every single day. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I haven't studied all the same languages for the whole time. You know, I started with, what was the first one? I, it was Swedish. And I did some Russian and Danish and Romanian, Esperanto. And at the moment, I'm concentrating on Spanish, um, Japanese, and Swedish and Danish. I've finished the Swedish and Danish courses. So it's just um, maintain, maintenance there, really, improving my, my knowledge of the languages. But with Spanish, you know, I finished the course, and then they had a, they added a whole bunch of new lessons. <laughs> so I thought, well, why not? I'll do some more of that. And I've, I've used lots of different courses, for Spanish especially. Yeah, I've got a whole bookshelf full of Spanish language courses. And they've all helped. They've all been useful in different ways. Now some some are better than others. Some I enjoy more than others. Um, but I think every language course is is useful and it's designed to help you learn a language. It may not work perfectly for you, but you can you can find ways to make it useful and get something from it. So how exactly do you go about a typical day of language learning? I know you're using Duolingo and Memrise. Is there a routine or do you just let it trickle in as you have time? It's just when I have time, generally. Um, you know, I set, set myself a goal. I do 500 points a day at the moment. And most of those in Japanese and Spanish. And then top up with the Danish and Swedish ones. Some days I think I don't want to learn anything new. So I'm just revising, reviewing stuff. And other times I'm doing lots of new lessons as well. So there's, there's no particular routine you know I, I might start with Japanese one day and Spanish another day or or think right I'll, I'll start with Swedish today or, or Danish it doesn't really matter so in terms of your website like you've got a lot of different things happening there you've got some useful phrases you've got uh, audio recordings you even have my hovercraft is full of eels <laughs> in so many languages yep. so what has inspired you for each uh, of those different branches of content and how do you find the translations and make sure that you're keeping a high quality on it? Well, it started with writing systems, alphabets, as I got interested through learning Chinese and Japanese. And then I found out there's all these other different writing systems out there, especially in, in India. There's so many different ones there. And I keep on discovering new ones. I added a new one today that someone's invented recently for a language spoken in Northern India. Yeah, I don't know if anybody will actually end up using this one, but the guy who invented it, he's keen to give his his language its own script, which is something quite a lot of people in India want to do, I think. There's so many different languages, and they want to have their own identity, and part of that is having their own way to write it rather than using an existing um, alphabet. So that's what got me interested. And then you know, I started adding uh, pages about languages, and then the phrases came next, I think, and then numbers and then colors and days of the week and telling the time. So it all kind of grew organically. I didn't have a particular plan. It may have been someone suggested, you know, why don't you put a phrase about this phrase, a page about a particular phrase, or um, 
someone sent me some some phrases and it included um some I hadn't had before, like, you know, do you come here often or something? So I thought, right, I can put put together a page about that. So I'll I'll search online for any other collections of phrases um that people have made and I'll check them and I'll put them on, on my Facebook pages for Omniglot and ask people, can they provide corrections and new new translations? And whenever anybody writes to me sending phrases in their language, I'll say, can you send me some more phrases? Can you send me some recordings? You know, can you check the phrases I've already got? Are they are they right? So, you know, I I, I um try to get everything accurate, but I can't guarantee that it is. Okay, so Omniglot we'll put in the show notes for everyone. It's free, correct? That's right, yeah. It's omniglot.com and the title is The Online Encyclopedia of Writing Systems and Languages. I, too, liked the silly foreign phrases. Um, in <laughs> Breton, you can say, I know how to make pancakes. I'm so going to use that phrase, like, I know how to make pancakes. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't born yesterday. I know how to make pancakes. I love it. How would you recommend, because you could seriously delve into the Omniglot universe and never come out. So I do recommend tying a rope to your waist before you go in and having (laughs) a family member pull you out in three or four hours. (laughs) And then you can dip back in again. If you're a beginner language learner, for example, learning Japanese, what would you recommend the first few steps are to playing with Omniglot, to discovering Japanese through Omniglot? I mean, you can start with the phrases, learn a few basic phrases, and there's recordings for most of them, I think. And maybe numbers, look a bit about how it's written, how it's pronounced. Um, and that will get you started. And then you've got, you've got links to so many other resources. And I try and find um, online courses and dictionaries and whatever other material that might help learners on their journey. So, you know, online news. Um, what else have I got? Oh, yeah, something I, I started adding relatively recently, a few years ago, was... was um, videos. So I find videos on YouTube and embed them to give people a flavor of what the languages sound like. And if I can find, you know, collections of, of phrases, I'll add those to the phrases pages. It may not be the same ones as I, I've got on my, in my collection, but it adds, adds to the pages. Uh, what year did you start the site? 1998. 1998. So the, I would imagine that after all this time, after uh, 24 years, you would have run out of languages. <laughs> no, nowhere near. <laughs> I am constantly seeing on your social media, just added a new language. And like you said, <laughs> there's new, new writing systems. Yeah. So like, how does that work? Because like, uh, like we imagine the, the finite number of languages after 24 years, it's done. Uh, well, no, not quite. <laughs> Tell me a bit about that. Like, where are these languages coming from? Well, it, there's, there's over 7,000 languages in the world, according to some sources. It depends how you define a language. You know, some some might be classified as, as a single language, but other people might say, oh, it's a whole bunch of different languages. So, you know, the, the numbers you should take with a pinch of salt, they're not they're definitive, because there's no definitive way to, to distinguish a language and a dialect. But... Um, I think I have over 1,600 languages on there now, language profiles. So there's plenty more to go. And um, the ones I don't have, a lot of them aren't, aren't very well documented. 
So it's, it becomes increasingly difficult to find the information about them. There may be you know a few few short paragraphs on Wikipedia. That's often where I start. See what's available there. I look in the English, and then see in other languages if there's more information. And sometimes there is, which is another reason why language learning is is useful. And it may be in languages I don't know, so I use Google Translate if it's if it's available for that language to, to get an idea what what's going on. And also there may be different links in each language version. So if you're looking at languages, say from Brazil, there may be more information available in Portuguese than in English. There's always there's always more 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 information to add. And I, I could go into dialects as well. I have done that for some languages to some extent. And that would increase the number of, of pages <laughs> enormously. So there's so many different varieties of some languages. You know, just English, for example, so many different different dialects and accents that you could write about. So yeah, it's it's it, I'm never gonna run out of material, I don't think. Thank goodness, because <laughs> we need it. We need lots more material. So your master's degree in, in linguistics, first of all, I know many language hackers are drooling at the idea of getting a master's degree in linguistics. What exactly does that entail? What are you learning in that master's degree? Well, it depends on, on the, the program. I mean, the one I did, it was aimed at people who didn't have much background in linguistics. So it's kind of generally an overview of linguistics and introducing you to fundamental things like syntax and pragmatics and phonetics and phonology and such like. And then you could choose other classes. Um, I did classes in um, language disorders because I was thinking of becoming a, a speech and language therapist. Um, also, and I wrote my dissertation um, on language death and revival focusing particularly on Manx Gaelic. I've been interested in the Celtic languages for a long time. As, as Benny said, I speak Irish, and I also speak Welsh and Scottish Gaelic, and I learned Manx, partly during my research. And it's fascinating meeting people who actually were part of the revival of a language, because Manx essentially died out as a community language at the beginning of, beginning of the 20th century. And there are a few speakers up until the 1980s that I was told they were too ashamed to admit that they spoke the language. Now, officially, the last native speaker died in 1974, but you know, one of the people who was very instrumental in, in the revival, Brian Stoll, he told me you know, he knew people after that, into the 1980s, who, who still spoke it, but they wouldn't admit it because the attitude to the language was so negative. But now um, there's nearly 2,000 people who speak it to varying degrees, and um, children are growing up speaking it in some families. And there's a, a school where they, they can learn it, learn through Manx, so they become fluent. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to see a language just being reawakened, as some, some people would say, revived. And um, yeah, linguistics is, is, a, is a huge topic. It's not, there's, there's so many different aspects to it. You can focus on different, different parts of it. We focus on um, documenting languages. That's partly what I did with Manx, or um, on phonetics and phonology. And phonetics, the study of sound, how they're used in languages. Um, a friend of mine from the Czech Republic does that. She studied an obscure um, aspect of how English is spoken in Aberystwyth in Wales. Did a PhD 
in uh, what's it called pre-aspiration so that's when when you have a little sound before a consonant and she noticed in recordings people from Aberystwyth that they were doing this and she wanted to investigate so it's it's a very niche topic but when you study something like that you become expert in a, a wide range of different things in, in research and analyzing speech and all sorts of things and now she teaches linguistics in a university in Denmark so you never know when where linguistics might take you there's so many different aspects to it in your case you definitely have a true passion like you said for the Celtic languages and I think um I, I'd be very interested to hear like what is uh giving you all that passion because I mean obviously your mother has the Welsh background but um you know you don't just focus on Welsh and is there a unique situation for these Celtic languages because they tend to be drowned out so much by mainly English? I know there's exceptions like uh, Breton in France, but like uh, for the most part, they tend to be drowned out by English languages. Uh, is that something that you, you feel like you want to be a part of this movement to fortify these languages? Is there something unique for Celtic languages with you? Well, that's part of, the, part of, the, part of it, yes learning these minority languages, yes. But um, I first got interested in Irish and Scottish Gaelic um, when I was a teenager, listening to music, Tarnad and Enya and Runrig and Capicaley as a Scottish band. And I loved the sounds of these languages when people sang them. And I thought, I want to sing these songs. And I, I started off trying to learn the songs. I didn't understand the word of them. I just tried to mimic how people were singing them. And when I saw them written down, I thought, how on earth can people you know, sound like that? And the, the writing looks so different. And then later on, I started to learn to read and, and to, to speak the languages and to read and write them. And I got fascinated by them, by their... The, the languages themselves are so different to other European languages in many ways, in terms of grammar and pronunciation and vocabulary and history. And also the culture and music and all the different aspects associated with them. So um, I think I started learning Irish seriously in about 2004. And I went to Glen Columbia for the first time in 2005, I think it was. And I, I went there every year until 2019 for a week or two, doing summer schools mainly. And also did harp courses and... Uh, um, one year I did a, a Boran course as well. That's the traditional Irish drum. And I just love going back. It's just, I, I got to know people in Glencon, Kilia. It's a, a small place and you can get to know the locals because there's not many of them. I've seen, I've got to know people and seen their kids growing up. And and um, it's just, just a really friendly, nice, beautiful place. In terms of the... Uh, choices that you've had for languages that you both dived into yourself and had on the site. Uh, have you found any pushback from people? Because I know whenever I list the languages that I'm best in and I include Esperanto, I, I get a little bit of frustration from some people because they're like, well, that's uh, an artificial language. And, you know, you should only focus on quote unquote real languages. But you've actually given attention to numerous artificial languages on Omniglot. So what, what have you found has been people's reaction to that? 
I don't really get much pushback on Omnigos itself. You know, people writing to me saying, why do you include this language? It's not a real language and all that sort of nonsense. But if I, I'm talking to people and saying, oh, yeah, I speak Esperanto, um, some people will say, oh, cool, yeah, I've heard of that. I would say, what's that? And I explain, so, oh, yeah, right, great. Um, does anybody speak it? You know, I explain. And then other people say, oh, isn't, nobody speaks that. It's a, it's a silly language. I don't get that very often, but I've heard that, certainly. And sometimes you get that with minority languages as well. You know, people will say, why on earth are you learning this language? Nobody speaks it. That's usually kind of English people saying, why are you learning Welsh or Irish or Scottish Gaelic or whatever? You know, they all speak English anyway, so why bother? You get that. Even with major world languages like Spanish or French, you know, people might say, you know, what's the point? So you do get that. And what's your answer to that? Like, how do you reply to that kind of, um, you know, like Anglophone closed-mindedness that like, why bother learn another language? Everyone just speaks English anyway. Well, I would say, well, if you don't want to, that's fine. You don't have to. But I do it because I'm interested in the language and the, the people and the culture and the places. And I want to learn more about them. And by learning the language, that's a major way to do, do that and to understand what's going on. It's not essential, but it's, it's something I like to do. You know, I've never bumped into someone that's asked me, why would you bother doing that? I think where I live, and maybe it's just my enthusiasm, I mostly hear, oh my gosh, I've always wanted to learn XYZ or, oh, I've always wanted to, you know, how do you have time? And so if we go back to the four pillars, writing, listening, speaking, and reading, I think, and I love the idea of the jazz, the jazz analogy that it's like jazz when you're talking, because it really is the pauses are kind of more thought out because you're thinking of something and then you're, then you'll go in with a riff. I remember when I first learned guitar, I just grabbed a chord book. This was pre-italki, pre-preply, pre-YouTube. like And I grabbed a chord book and every morning I said, for a half hour, I'm going to take my electric guitar and learn a chord. And I just wrote songs that way. And so that was kind of like speaking from day one because I was singing a lot during that time. And my, my muscle memory was getting, was growing. So how do you recommend beginners use the four pillars in their daily life? Like how can they, how can they make their own jazz routine? And because you're right, if you don't practice it, it's going to be much more difficult to speak when the time comes. Well, there's, there's lots of different ways you can incorporate language into your daily life. I mean, things I do, like on, when I post on Instagram, for example, I always write in English and Welsh, just to practice my Welsh. Um, you can do that on social media, you know, practice using different languages. When you watch YouTube videos, if there are comments in languages you're learning, you could reply to them, get into a conversation with people on forums as well. You can find forums in, in your language and start talking to people doing that. And if you're, you're writing, you've got more time to think about what you want to say. Um, speaking, you need to kind of be more, more immediate. You know, if you, if you, if you pause a lot, people think you don't know what you're talking about and they'll switch to your language as they speak it mainly. So, you know, practicing writing is, is a very good, good, um, exercise. And other things I do, you know, when I'm going out shopping, I think, right, um, what do I need? And I'll think in, in a different languages, right? I'm going to the supermarket. 
okay, give my, I make a little commentary and maybe write a shopping list in, in the language I want to practice. And if I don't know the words, I'll look them up. And as I'm going to buy things, you know, it's more likely that I'll remember them. So, you know, I'm going, I'm, you know, I need some tomatoes and potatoes or whatever I need. And then, um, you know, just, just um, thinking about what you're doing during the day and looking around your house and saying, do I know how to, uh, all the names for all the different things in my house and what I'm doing and looking out the window and looking at other people, maybe if you're sitting in a cafe, watching people saying, you could, um, you know, talk about what they're doing, think about what they're doing in your language or um, even make up stories about them. That's something I do sometimes. You know, you see a couple near you in a table and you think, what's their story? Also background, what, what are they doing here? What are they talking about? If you, even if you're not learning a language, it's a fun thing to do anyway. It's so fun, especially at like a museum. I'll bring a journal and I'll sit in the corner, but I never thought to do that in, like I'll sit in the corner, people watch, and then I'll make up stories in my journal or I'll just be observing. But you could do that in a different language and the grocery store list. That's a brilliant idea. And um, listening to podcasts and online radio and um, watching YouTube and TikTok or whatever videos you like to watch in, in a language you're learning is, is, a, is another great way to do it. No, TikTok is, is good because it's all short. Yeah, I actually literally have 14 TikTok accounts because I just started <laughs> I started a new one because I trained the algorithm. And I, I when I go into my Irish language TikTok account, I only see Irish TikToks. So the algorithm yeah. does start to actually learn what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. Very, very interesting tool. I've definitely used myself as because uh, social media can be a big waste of time, but it can you can turn that on its head and it could be useful for you. Exactly. Yeah, I'm curious what what do you see uh, the next ten years or so of your uh, language learning looking like? Are you going to be sticking with the Celtic languages? Do you think you might expand? Or are you going to add things to Omniglot? I'm not sure. I mean, for the moment, I'm sticking to the ones I'm learning at the moment. I'm not planning to learn any any new ones. I, there's there's many I'd like to learn. I'd love to learn, say, Swahili. It looks like a fascinating language, and I have kind of indirect um, connections to Tanzania because my grandfather spent time there. Um, it was Tanganyika then, and he learned Swahili. Although, unfortunately, you know, he died when I was very young, so I didn't really know him. But it would be fascinating to, to learn that. And I'd love to learn more Cornish and Breton. Those are the Celtic languages I don't know very well. Although with Cornish, um, one trouble, one difficulty I found was there are so many different versions of the language. So I did a course on memorizing Cornish and then looked for a, another one. And I found other courses, but they were in different versions of the language. So it's like having to relearn it. It's all slightly different. Not that different, but it's, it kind of puts you off a bit. You know, I, I'll continue adding stuff to Omniglots, certainly. There's always new stuff to add there. And one thing I've been thinking about in my Radio Omniglot podcasts, at the moment I'm doing two a week, one, uh, the Adventures in Etymology series, where I look into the origins of words. And I do those on Saturdays. And then on Sundays, I do my uh, Omnigot News podcast, talking about all the new things that are happening in the world of Omniglot, or the Omniglot universe, if you prefer, the Omniglot linguistic universe, even. <laughs> and um, I've, I've, um, I'd like to add another series talking about Celtic languages. Some, another project I've been working on is the uh, looking at connections between 
and within the Celtic languages, finding words that are cognate. Because um, so Scottish Gaelic, Manx, and um, Irish are very close. It's very easy to find words that are similar, but not so easy to find um, connections. The connections between, say, Irish and Welsh, they are there, but you have to dig a bit deeper to find them, because the, the spelling and pronunciation has changed. And you also like to find um, words in other languages, like French and Spanish, with Celtic roots. So I'd like to start a series on on Radio Omniglot talking about those Celtic connections. Although I can't use the, the name Celtic Connections because other people have done that already. There's a big music festival in Glasgow called Celtic Connections. And I think they might not be too happy if I use that, that name. So I'm thinking maybe Celtic Pathways or something like that might be a good name for it. I haven't got around to actually starting that yet, but that's, that's something I would like to do. Uh, so Simon, one question we do ask everyone who comes on the podcast, uh, because this is the Language Hacking Podcast, is what would your definition be of language hacking? Well, trying to use whatever you know as as much as possible. So even if you don't, you only know how to say hello, how are you? You know, just get out there and use it. I think, and then work from there. So everything you learn is useful. Even if you learn obscure things like my hovercraft is full of wheels, you can find ways to 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 use that. So. Um, yeah, and and um, you know, I've written songs based on silly phrases I found on Duolingo, and there's a lot of those for some languages. But you know, one thing you you could you could find ways to use them, or you could say, okay, I might never use this actual particular phrase, but um, because it's it's silly and memorable, I will remember the structures and the the words in it, and I can use them in other contexts. So. That's maybe another another useful thing to do, kind of make up your own ridiculous phrases. You know, I do that with, with my songs. You know, I take a, an idiom. My latest song was based on the, the idiom, um, a rolling stone gathers no moss. And I started riffing on that. So the second verse is uh, a rolling cheese gathers no mice. And then the third is uh, a running moose gathers no flies. And you can you can play around with things like that. And if you're writing songs and you want them to rhyme, that's another challenge if you're writing in another language, if you don't know so many words. So that's one thing I do. I've written songs in Welsh and, and French and Manx. And getting, getting the rhymes is, is a real challenge. You have to search around. But it's, it's a useful exercise because you learn all sorts of words. They might be obscure, but you never know when they might be useful. Very well said. I like that. So this has been a fascinating chat with you, Simon. Really appreciate all your answers to our questions. Uh, we will definitely have links in the show notes, not just to obviously Omniglot, but to your social media and to Radio Omniglot. So people who are already in the podcast space can go check out his podcast. And uh, otherwise, do you have any closing words for us? If you're learning a language, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Keep at it. Keep at it indeed. I like that. All right. So... With that being said, I'll wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. And that's a wrap. What an interesting interview with Simon. At the end of the podcast, we like to discuss a few takeaways we've gathered. Benny, what was your highlight during this interview? 
Uh, so here's something that just our Patreon subscribers are going to have heard uh, when we dived into music. But he gave this analogy that I absolutely adored. I haven't heard this before, that, um, you know, when you're comparing language learning to something like music, he said it's like jazz because uh, you improvise with jazz. With most music, we imagine reading uh, the the music notes in front of you and you're doing something that's played out before. But when you're speaking a language, you're creating sentences no one has ever said before. And this is like the improvisation that you have with jazz because jazz has these kicks to it that make it unique every time uh, a song is played. So I absolutely love that analogy. What was your takeaway? Oh, I love that too. I'm a pretty practical language learner. So I was really needling him to get more tips. Like, what do you do on a daily basis? Tell me what you do. And the one that really stuck out to me was uh, people watching and creating stories in your mind. I think that people watching is actually a form of mindfulness. For me, it is anyway. Um, So sometimes I'll use journaling as a version of a mindful practice where I'm sitting down and I'm just observing what's going around, going on around me. What if I did that in my target languages? That's a fantastic idea. Also the shopping list. Um, For me, I put like on my calendar, I write all of my events in my target languages, French for my calendar. And so it'll be little things like meeting with, you know, Benny. So I'll say rendezvous avec Benny. And it's those little things that keep my brain thinking in that way, fairly left Eve, like I'm going to do the, the laundry at this on this day. So incorporating just little bits of language learning can really, I think, spark more curiosity and more connection to the language in your daily life. We truly hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you are, you can reach out to us and let us know. Reach out to Benny at info at fluentin3months.com. We love hearing from you. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can sign up as a Patreon subscriber. We've got three fabulous tiers, and you can do that at languagehacking.com forward slash Patreon. Thanks so much, and see you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pasco, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.